Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Thursday, May the 5th, 2022. It is currently 3.56 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live two stories above a street right here in Abilene, Texas. And if I'm honest with you right now, what I would like to do is just open this window up that's right behind me and just jump out, just jump out. I know it's only two stories above. I know it's, okay, so, someone someone was listening to the pre-show and they took a drink of water with me. All right, so good. We're, we're, we're all hydrated because we're gonna need to be hydrated. But but back to my my, my illustration here that's, that's pretty accurate. I, I wanna open up the window behind me right here and I want to jump out. Now, I know it's only two stories above, so that means I'm probably not going to do much damage to myself. So maybe I could get to, the, I could crawl to the roof. Maybe I need to get in my car, drive to, well, kind of close to downtown Abilene, Texas, to the uh, to the tallest building in Abilene. I don't even remember how many stories it is. It's not that tall, but it, it would be tall enough to do great damage. And I just want to jump off a tall building. I know that that's not what I'm acting. I actually want to do, but I'm trying to use it as an illustration to explain my frustration, my irritation, and something. It, it, it I've been frustrated with it throughout my Christian life, but I'm just extra frustrated about it today. I'm just, I'm just, oh, I'm just irritated. In fact, I'm so frustrated and irritated about it today that I that I almost when when I I was like, okay, well, typically this is the time I go upstairs to do a live broadcast, and I thought, you know what, just forget it. Well, what's the point? What's the point? There's no point. There's just who cares? I'm just gonna I'll just stay downstairs, watch TV, listen to music, do something else, and because I, I'm just irritated, I'm just frustrated, and it's something that has bothered me throughout my Christian life, and hopefully, my frustration will be somewhat beneficial. Maybe you listening to me be frustrated may prove to be somewhat beneficial to you. I, I hope I hope it does. I hope it does. Um, if it doesn't, maybe you'll be entertained by me trying to process my frustration live behind a microphone. I don't know, but I am extremely irritated and frustrated. And here is how it all happened. Here, here is how everything occurred. Last night, we were doing a review of a podcast from Theocast, or Theocast, dealing with eschatology. Now, eschatology is already a very frustrating subject, because if you know anything about church history, if you know anything about mo- the modern church today, if you know about anything going on within Christianity right now, you know there is very little agreement when it comes to things related to esch- eschatology, the study of end times. There's all these different systems of eschatology. Everyone disagrees. Everyone thinks they're right. Everyone thinks everyone else is wrong. And it's just, it's maddening, maddening, maddening because there's so much disagreement. But look, hey, it doesn't stop with eschatology. There's not agreement on baptism. There's not agreement on salvation. There's just not agreement on anything. And that lack of agreement, that that lack of of agreement on really anything. There, there's really no agreement even on, I mean, you just take a Bible verse and get 10 commentaries. You end up with 50 different interpretations. It can be maddening at times. Now that always bothers me. That's always there just poking at me. It's always irritating, 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 irritating. But as I was listening 
to Theocast as I was listening to their, their podcast. Yes, the podcast was frustrating and irritating, but at least they acknowledged, they acknowledged at least, it was very brief, but they acknowledged that when you really get down to it, the issue here, they, they didn't really say it in, in such a blunt way, but the real issue when it comes to all of the differences about eschatology is it comes down to hermeneutics. That's what it comes down to. It comes down to hermeneutics. In fact, all of the disagreements are really disagreements about hermeneutics. And when it comes down to eschatology, I think the biggest difference is there is a massive disagreement between a historical, critical, grammatical hermeneutic, or just sometimes referred to as a historical, grammatical hermeneutic, versus a redemptive historical hermeneutic. So it means, look, before we can argue eschatology, before we can argue so many doctrinal issues, the real issue is at this fundamental level, what is the hermeneutical system you utilize to study the Bible? Which which one do you use? And, and, And when dealing with eschatology, it really comes down to, do you use the historical grammatical one? Or do you use the redemptive historical one? That, that's re- And if you can't come to an agreement right there, there really is no point in talking about anything else, right? It doesn't matter what you, ad- if you can't agree on the hermeneutics, there's no way to reconcile differences on the rest of the theology because that theology should be based on how we interpret the Bible. And if we can't agree on what system we're going to use to interpret the Bible, there can be no meaningful agreement. And that is maddening. That is so irritating. So uh, this, this morning I woke up and, and just as I, as I was continuing to just to think about that disagreement between the historical, grammatical, and the redemptive historical, I was like, you know, well, maybe, maybe at some point we'll do a, we'll do a discussion about the difference between historical and grammatical and redemptive and historical. And then I'm like, well, wait a minute. Those are not the only two hermeneutical systems. There's more. There's at least five. And then I started thinking, well, you know what? Maybe, maybe we'll do a discussion about all five. And then it became, then I even started getting more frustrated. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take you through kind of a little, a little journey here. And I want you to really think about it because I think these problems with hermeneutical systems, I think, I think these, this leads to a reality that we may not want to admit. This leads to a, I think this leads to a fundamental problem for every, I'm going to say every non-Catholic Christian on the face of the earth. This leads to some major questions and we're going to have to deal with it and hopefully this will make sense. So before before I get into any of those five systems, before I get into any of that, before I, I, I explain anything else that happened today, because there's there's something else that happened today that added to more frustration. But before we get there, let's start here uh, with, a I think, a good place to start. Let's start with a definition of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the branch of knowledge that deals with interpretation, especially of the Bible or literary text. So hermeneutics is really the branch of knowledge, or we could say the branch of study 
that deals with how you interpret or hermeneutics gives you the principles, the methods that you are to use in order to properly interpret a text. Okay, now that sounds wonderful. That sounds great, right? It would be simple. Okay, okay, Christians, Christians from around the world, you know, I'm, I'm holding up a notebook. Here it is. Here are the principles of biblical hermeneutics. Everyone use these principles and everyone can interpret the Bible. And if everyone is using the same system of hermeneutics, we should all have very, 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 very similar interpretations. And there should only be slight differences, right? I mean, in theory, that should work, correct? But here's the problem. (laughs) There's not an agreed upon hermeneutic. Right there, you just, I just want to start throwing things, right? Hey, hermeneutics is the branch of knowledge that deals with interpretation. Okay, well, we Christians, we want to be able to interpret the Bible, and if all we have to do is get the right tools, the right methods, the right principles of interpretation, then we will all interpret it in a very, very, very similar way. I mean, if we're all using the very same methods of interpretation, our choices in interpretation should be, I mean, there should be only be a few options, and you think that there w- that we would w- using the same principles, we would probably come close to choosing the same options, right? I think I think it would pretty li- it would limit greatly on what we can do. But you you and I know two thousand years of church history. Well, clearly there's not agreement, and why is there not agreement? Because there's not agreement on the principles of interpretation, which is absolutely maddening. Now. I'm going to start with scripture, and I'm going to ask some questions here that's going to, that should make us all very, 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 very uncomfortable, all right? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, if you've gone to church for any length of time, you're probably very, 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 very familiar with at least these three passages of scripture. The first one is 2 Timothy chapter 3. You've probably heard sermon after sermon after sermon after sermon, after sermon about this. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Right? This establishes some very, very clear principles. First, that the Bible is the inspired word of God. All right? That God has given us his word, his revelation, in a written form. It is God-breathed. It is inspired by God. Right? That's an amazing truth. That God, the creator, the all-knowing, eternal God, has given us his, his revelation his will, his word right here in written form. And it's inspired. It's breathed out by him. That, that's amazing. That's awesome. Okay, so, so here it is. Now, it's inspired, but listen, it is, pro- not only is it inspired, it is profitable. In other words, when we take it and we read it, it is profitable, and it's profitable for some very specific things. Doctrine. In other words, if you want to know what to believe, you figure that out, well, from the inspired word of God. It is good for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, 
may be perfect, complete, not lacking anything, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. He has given us his word. It is inspired. It is God-breathed. It is profitable for what to believe, for reproof, for correction, for instruction, that we may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. In other words, if we're going to be thoroughly furnished unto all good works, if we're going to be complete spiritually, not lacking anything, if we're going to have the right doctrine and if we're going to have the right manner of life, it, it's going to come from right here. The word of God. The word of God. Now, here's the question. That tells you the significance of the Bible. That tells you the importance of the Bible. That tells you why the Bible is so important. But from 2 Timothy 3.16, do we understand that to mean that the Bible, therefore, can be given to any person? It is the inspired word of God, and that any person can pick it up and read it and figure out the right doctrine, figure out the right manner of life, be thoroughly furnished unto every good work, and that, so that they are complete, lacking nothing. If you just hand a person a Bible, it, is the Bible, is it possible? Is the average individual capable of reading it and reaping all of those benefits? Now, if you, your, your, your first answer is going to be an emphatic, unless you're a Catholic, your, your first answer as a non-Catholic is going to be absolutely. God gave us his word. We can understand it. We may even, many non-Catholics will go so far as to say, God has given us his spirit. His spirit helps us understand it. His spirit will lead us unto all truth. This is a common belief among many evangelicals. Of course, there's a major problem with that. 2,000 years of church history, if the Holy Spirit's leading us into all truth, why is there no agreement? So major problems with that. I believe that promise was specifically for the apostles and the writers of the New Testament, but we, we, could, we can have that discussion at a later time. But the point is, the, the average person, the average evangelical, the average non-Catholic will say, yes, anyone can pick up the Bible, they can get their doctrine, manner of life, they can be made complete, they can be thoroughly furnished into every good work because the Bible, God has given us his word so that we can understand it. We have the ability to do so. The average person, First right? Peter chapter 2, you, you, you probably know this passage, First Peter chapter 2, First Peter chapter 2, verse 1. You know this passage. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. Your spiritual growth is dependent upon your partaking and feeding on God's word, which would, I think the average person would would. Take that to mean that any person, any believer can pick it up and read it, and they are going to grow spiritually, that they will possess, at least they should be able to possess the ability to be able to read it and understand it to such a sufficient level that they will grow spiritually, which would inquire, would require a, some form of a correct understanding of it. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26. Ephesians 5, 26, we can go, he's using an illustration uh, of marriage and, and, and uh, comparing that with Christ and the church. And, he, and, and Paul writes this, Ephesians 5, verse 26 
um, or I'll go to uh, 525. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. It is God's word that washes us. It washes us. It helps us grow. It equips us. It is, it is the word of God. It, 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 it gives us doctrine. It gives us the right manner of life. It completes us. It, it gives us everything. It furnishes us to every good work. It is God's word, God's word, God's word, God's word. But we say God's word does all of these things. And when we say that, listen, as a non-Catholic, we have to believe to some level, then anyone should be able to pick it up, read it, understand it, and be able to interpret it to such a level that those benefits would be manifest in their lives. So for a non-Catholic, we have to believe that there is a, there's a, the Bible is written in such a way that we should be, the average person should be able to pick it up, interpret it, and understand it. That has to be implied. Let me let me jump to, I believe what sixteen. I believe it's sixteen eighty nine, the London Baptist Confession of Faith, one of the confessions of faith that clearly comes out of the Protestant Reformation. And remember, and, and this is very important. If you if you go back to the Catholic perspective, the Catholic perspectives, the Catholic perspective was very unique because they said yes, the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Yes. It, it can produce all of these things. However, the average person is does not have the authority nor the ability, and I'm, I'm summarizing here. I may, may be oversimplifying it, but you'll get the basic idea. The Catholic Church was basically like, no, you need the church. You can't figure it out yourself. You can't understand. You need a magisterial authority that has the right the authority and the ability to give you an authoritative authoritative interpretation of what you are reading. You need the church. Yes, you need the word of God, but the word of God was primarily given to the church, and it's the church's job to take it. Men who understand all of the rules and how to interpret it, they interpret it, then they tell you what to believe, and then you believe it. So in reality, in the Catholic system, they, they may try to argue against this, but this is basically how it would have to be outlined. You have God inspires his word. It's given to the church. The church has learned men who learns the correct way of interpreting it. They interpret it authoritatively. They give it to the people and the people must believe what the church gives to them because the church has some kind of apostolic succession and authority in order to give a proper interpretation. Well, clearly the Protestant Reformation was like, no, not gonna, we're not gonna, we're not gonna listen to the church. The church doesn't have that power. We have that power. Take me, my Bible, I have the power to interpret it. I have the ability, I have the power to interpret it, and I can come to a right interpretation. I don't need the church. Now, people say, no, no, no. The reformers didn't say you didn't need the church. Well, I know you can say they didn't say that, but it was the unintended consequences because as soon as someone didn't agree with the church, they just went and started another church or started another group. They were not bound by the church. Whatever authority they wanted to give to the church, they the church only had the authority that the person in the pew gave the church. And the minute that they didn't like what the church did, they took that authority, walked away, and went and started another group. 
So in reality, the church could not, they could offer all the interpretations they wanted, but it was the people in the pew who determined whether they agreed with the interpretation or disagreed with the interpretation based on their own interpretation and their own learning. This was, this just created a downward spiral of just almost spiritual anarchy. Okay. So, but here is how the London Baptist Confession, this is very similar to the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is the, really the attitude that came out of the Protestant Reformation. Listen carefully. Here's paragraph one uh, on the chapter dealing with the Holy Scriptures. Here we go. Paragraph one. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Stop right there. Simply put, this is a way of saying, the Latin phrase is script, uh, sola scriptura, scripture alone. This is a way of saying, look, the, the only sufficient, the only certain, the only infallible rule of saving knowledge and faith and obedience is the word of God. That's it. It is sola scriptura, the Bible. That's, that's the only sufficient. What is sufficient is the word of God. What is certain is the word of God. What is infallible is the word of God. And this gives you the rules for saving, saving knowledge, for faith, and for obedience. Now, they do acknowledge that the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will, which is necessary unto salvation." Therefore, it pleased the Lord, and at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal himself and to declare that his will, that his will unto his church, and afterward, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. So they go, sola scriptura. There's no other form of revelation. It's God's word. This is God's completed revelation. And it is the only rule. It is, it's, this is all you have. It's the word of God. Not the church. It's the scriptures. It's the scriptures. Now, when you say that, then you have to believe to some level that any person, any lay person, maybe their job Monday through Friday is a carpenter. Maybe their job Monday through Friday is a bus driver. Maybe Monday through Friday, their job is a street sweeper. Who knows what their job is? But whatever they do Monday through Friday, they should be able to, when they come home, open the Bible. And here it is. They should be able to understand it. They should be able to interpret it because if they can't understand it and can't, and can't interpret it, well, then it's not the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of faith unless you're going to say that infallible, sufficient, infallible, certain rule of faith, unless you say it was given to the church and the church is the one that gives the people the interpretation. But if you say the church doesn't have that authority, that anyone can, well, then if anyone can, you have to argue that anyone can has the ability to do so. Let's go, let's jump down to another paragraph in this chapter. The authority of the Holy Scripture for which it ought to be believed dependeth not upon the testimony of any man or church, 
but wholly upon God, which is truth itself, the author thereof. Therefore, it is to be received because it is the word of God. The authority of scripture is not dependent upon the church. It is dependent on the fact that it is the word of God. Once again, separating it in a sense from the church and the sense that the church is not in charge of it. The church doesn't stand over it. The, the church is, just has it just like every other person sitting inside the church. Like, and the, and the Protestant way of mind, yes, the church has the Bible, but so does everyone else. The church offers an interpretation, but so does everyone sitting in the pew. And if the person sitting in the pew determines that what the church interprets is different than their interpretation, they'll just leave and go find a church that agrees with their interpretation or just start one, which we've seen throughout church history. We may not like to hear that, but it's just the truth. Next paragraph. This is very important. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scriptures and the heavenliness of the matter and the efficacy of the doctrine and of the majesty of the style, the consent of all parts, the scope of the whole, which is, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation and many other uncomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God, yet notwithstanding. So we may get some great arguments from the church that will make us really appreciate the word of God. However, this is very important, notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority Therefore, is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. In other words, the final authority is not determined by the church. It is determined by this supposed inner witness of the Holy Spirit, which can become extremely subjective. And a lot of people take this to mean, and, and you'll hear Christians say this, well, I hear your interpretation, but it just doesn't feel right in my spirit. And, and I just don't feel that, that the Holy Spirit's telling me that's wrong. Okay, well... At that point, your, your hermeneutic becomes your feeling, okay? Now, I'm not saying that that's what the uh, writers of the London Baptist Confession of Faith are trying to say, but that concept has so entered into the minds of many in the evangelical world, that's almost how they approach it. Well, I'll know, I'll know a doctrine is true or a doctrine is false based off a feeling I get, <laughs> which that's... That's the most subjective, insane thing I've ever heard, but you hear that within Christianity. Now, one more paragraph I want to read. Here we go. Listen carefully. Now, this is, this is the key paragraph here. All things in Scripture are not alike. Now, this I want you to listen carefully. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet... Those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of ordinary means, may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. Now, this kind of limits it a little bit, but it is still saying that an unlearned person using ordinary means, ordinary means would be just the ordinary basic rules of reading, right? The ordinary means. In other words, no specialty training is required. 
just your basic understanding of reading, someone should be able to pick it up, the most unlearned person, and be able to figure out what is necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation. That's the claim. Now, they limit it because they would say, well, this doesn't mean everything in the Bible. Just they would say anything that must be uh, known, believed, and observed for salvation. Now, again, that's the claim. But we've got 2,000 years of church history. There's so much about salvation that there is no agreement on within Christianity. Does baptism save or is it not? does it not save? Does baptism, is baptism required for salvation or not required for salvation? How are we saved? Is the work of God alone monergistic or is it a synergistic work? Is it by faith alone or is it by faith plus works? Is it because of God's sovereign decree and election or it's man's free will? Are we totally depraved and totally unable or do we hold a Pelagian view where we're, we have a complete free will and we're not totally depraved? Are we guilty in Adam or not guilty in Adam? Are we saved by an imputed righteousness or an infused righteousness? There has been disagreements throughout church history. Well, those are learned men having disagreements. But the argument is, hey, and listen, you almost have to say this. If the Bible, if it's sola scriptura, and the Bible is the only sufficient rule of faith, it is the final authority. And it's for every individual. In other words, it's not the church in charge of it. This is for every individual. Then you have to make some kind of claim that the average individual can pick it up and read it and understand it. Now, 2,000 years of church history where there's disagreement, 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 it makes me call into question exactly how easy is it to understand. See my frustration? I mean, last night we were, we were listening to a, a podcast, Theocast, right? Some will say Theocast, Theocast, right? I've, I've heard people say them different ways, but okay, you, you get the idea. All right, they hold to a, a, a reformed theology, which I am very much more in the reformed camp in many ways than, 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 than the non-reformed camp. But even there, when they start talking about eschatology, I mean, it just brought up all of the divisions and differences in the church. And some will say, well, that's just eschatology. It doesn't matter. No, see, that's where you're missing the point. The point is it does matter because the differences in eschatology shows the fundamental difference in how we interpret the Bible. Now, here's the thing. If we can't even agree on how to interpret it, then then we have to ask ourselves, how clear, like how can the Bible be the final authority given to every individual if there isn't even agreement on how we are to pick it up and read it and interpret it? Now, here's the reason I'm, I'm asking this question. Because I started thinking about it. I started thinking about it. I'm like, okay, well, okay. I started thinking all my classes and hermeneutics books I've read. I'm like, okay, I know there's at least five. There's probably more, but there's at least five views of hermeneutics. So I started searching because the first thing I was going to do is because in that podcast that we were reviewing last night, again, I, I felt like the big issue here was some people use a historical grammatical approach to interpreting the Bible, and others use a redemptive historical approach to interpreting the Bible, where if you use a, a, the historical grammatical, 
seems to lead people more to, say, a dispensational way of viewing eschatology, while others who hold to our redemptive historical hermeneutic seems to be led more to an amillennial view. See, the issue isn't amillennialism versus dispensationalism. The issue isn't amillennialism versus premillennialism. The issue isn't pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, rapture, no rapture, millennial kingdom. All of that is, that's not even the issue. The issue is, which hermeneutical system are you utilizing? So I would thought about, you know, I'll, I'll just grab a book and, and I'll just, I'll look at the differences between the, redempt, the, uh, the historical grammatical and the redemptive historical. And that'll be a kind of an interesting podcast. So I found a book. In fact, I have it right here. I purchased it. It's like 20, almost $20, um, which I didn't necessarily want to spend, but $20. Sometimes you gotta you gotta spend money to have you know to be able to provide you the best the best instruction that I can. So I, I bought this book. It's called Biblical Hermeneutics: Five Views, edited by Stanley E. Porter and Beth M. Stovall. All right, Biblical Hermeneutics: Five Views, edited by Stanley E. Porter and Beth M. Stovall. Now, someone said that their local library has an app where you can basically download it for like your Kindle, and they have the book there for free. So you may want to look at your local libraries if you would like a copy of this book. So I got the book, and I'm like, okay, this is interesting. So I got the book. I'm going to go to the table of contents. No, I did, I did not want that. Okay. All right. Okay, here we go. I'm going to get rid of that. There we go. I bookmarked a page by accident, didn't want to. Okay, so I started looking at the table of contents. We got the introduction, uh, and then part one, five views, and I went and looked at that really quick. I'm thought, oh, they're going to give me a good summary of each view. No, they don't even do that. They're just like, here's the person who wrote this view. Here's the person who wrote this view. They say a few things about it, but they don't really give me a good summary. So I'm already frustrated. So I'm like, you know what? Here's what I'll do. I'll just look at... I'll just look at the, uh, the, the different views, right? So, uh, hang on. So the first view they offered here was the historical, critical, grammatical. I'm like, okay, so I'll look at the historical, critical, grammatical, and then I'll look at the redemptive, historical, and then I'll compare these two. But when I, before I even did that, I started looking, okay? And I'm like, well, wait a minute. They've got the literary postmodern, the philosophical, theological, and they've got the canonical. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, you know what? Maybe, maybe I'll just start, I'll just spend some time looking at these. So I'm going to give you the five, the five basic views here that are given in this book. You ready? All right, here, here are the five views. And just the fact, do you just, do you, I, maybe, see, immediately that should frustrate you because I just explained to you that, wait a minute, if the Bible is the sole authority, the final authority, it's the way the average Christian is supposed to be able to understand it. And I've just now just, just nonchalantly thrown out there, hey, there's five different views. Immediately you should have said, wait, 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 wait. There's five different approaches to biblical hermeneutics and the average unlearned lay person is supposed to be able to pick up the Bible and at least be able to figure out a lot. Well, clearly something, because the, the confession of faith, they said using the uh, use of normal, ordinary means. 
That means you wouldn't need any specialty training in hermeneutics, according to the average church. The average layperson can just do so. And the average layperson is engaged in doing that all the time. They read and they come up with their interpretation. They throw it on social media. They, 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 they will speak it during Sunday school and they may interrupt a sermon to give their interpretation. No specialty training. They think they can interpret it because in the Protestant world, it's like, it's my God-given right. It's my God-given authority. It's my God-given ability to read it and state it what it means. And not only state it what it means, tell everyone that they're wrong and I'm right. That, that's lit. I mean, that this is what Christianity is full of. But if there's five different views of hermeneutics, I guarantee you the average person has never even heard of some of these methods. The average person doesn't even know these methods exist. And I will, and well, I'll, I'll show you where I get frustrated. Okay, so, so the first one is the historical, critical, grammatical. The historical, critical, grammatical. Their summary, it goes something like this, or at least this is in an article I found about the book. They summarize it this way, borrowing from language from the book. The historical critical grammatical view seeks insight for interpretation from taking a critical analytical view of the history behind the text on the one hand and utilizing a grammatical analysis of the text on the other. Now, I've always often summarized the historical grammatical as we look at the history surrounding the text. What was going on? What is the history? Who was this written to? When was this written? What was happening at the time? What history gives us some insight into properly interpreting this text? And then grammatical, that's simple. What words are used? What did those words mean? How are those words connected with other words? What are the definitions? Like how, just your basic grammatical rules. So historical grammatical, I understand that view. And I think the average person, I think, could pretty much figure that. The historical background, may again, would require a little bit of work. And Well, we could get into a whole, I know I'm getting ready to sound like my Catholic professor when I attended a Catholic university. They'd be like, wait a minute, if the Bible is all sufficient, you shouldn't need to look up anything about the history because you should just be able to figure it out by reading the Bible. But then you'll find out, wait a minute, you do need tools to be able to come up with a correct interpretation and understanding. But I... I I digress. In other words, okay, yeah, we can get a whole discussion there. But there's the historical grammatical. Now, remember, the argument is the Bible. It's the inspired word of God. It gives you doctrine. It gives you the way to live. It, it makes you complete. It thoroughly furnishes you unto every good work. It is the spiritual food that helps you grow. It's the thing that washes you. And the Protestant idea is that the church is not in charge of it. It's for us, and we judge the church by it. So therefore, the average person not only should have access to it, they have the ability to read it and to interpret it. So can a person accomplish that without knowing the historical grammatical method? Now, some people say, well, they can interpret some things. Okay. When you say they can interpret some things, I want you to realize that's a cop-out. Because you got to be specific. What can just the average unlearned person interpret without knowing anything about hermeneutics? I mean, you've got to get specific. Because what, then what you're telling, because listen, if you're, if, you're, if you're honest with yourself, 
This is what this would lead to. Okay, listen, all the unlearned lay people who've never studied hermeneutics, these are the things you can read and interpret. Right here, I'm going to give you the list. Everything outside of that is beyond your scope of ability, beyond your scope of expertise. You need the church. Now, see, the minute I say that, Protestants will be like, burn that concept down. Absolutely not. Okay, well, so then can the average layperson figure these things out? The average layperson will tell you they can. Can they do so without this method? All right, now, this is where I get frustrated, all right? So, historical Critical, grammatical, okay, I can understand that one. I can explain that one, got you, okay? I think I can explain that method to the the average layperson and they can understand the basic concepts of the historical, grammatical. I think I can demonstrate historical, grammatical principles and preaching and teaching and help them apply them to their own study. I think it's manageable, it's workable, and the average person can figure that out. Oh, but this is where I got frustrated. I, I spent almost $20 on a book. And I start looking at the next one, literary postmodern. Now, I know a lot of people say, well, obviously we just reject it. Obviously, I want nothing to do with it. It uses the word postmodern. Okay, just for the average church member, I, would, I, I get really frustrated here. I hope you understand that you may, you probably have never even studied most of these methods of hermeneutics. So you can sit there and say you reject this one or reject that one. I guarantee you, you're probably using principles from all of them and not even realizing what you're doing because I see it happen all, I see preachers doing it all the time. I've probably been guilty of it. I guarantee I've been guilty of it. All right, but here's the, so this is where I get frustrated. So $20. Here's a, a system of hermeneutics. Now remember, Hermeneutics is how, if we're going to come to any agreement on anything, we have to agree on the hermeneutics. So what do you do if you hand someone a hermeneutical system that the hermeneutical system itself seems so convoluted that even trying to understand what it is seems impossible. Forget how to apply it. You don't even really understand the system itself. I read the chapter like a couple of times and I grabbed a notebook and I'm like, How would I even summarize this one? I don't even know if I could write this. I don't even know if I can summarize the points. The book does a horrible job of going like, here here are the five key elements for the literary postmodern. But let me just read how this one article tries to define it. Literary postmodern interpreters use a synchronic, a synchronic approach right? A synchronic approach. Now just write synchronic approach. What's a synchronic approach? What's a synchronic approach? If I was to ask the average unlearned layperson, what is a synchronic approach and interpretation? What is a synchronic approach? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to hear that silence. A synchronic approach. Now, if we look up the word synchronic, I got it right here. Uh, synchronic, all right? Synchronic is concerned with something. This is the definition. What does that mean? Concerned with something, especially a language as it exists at one point of time. Synchronic. What, what this sometimes refers to, in fact, I'll go to Merriam-Webster here. Synchronic. 
concerned with events existing in a limited time period and ignoring historical antecedents. All right. That that's what what exactly is that referring to? Right. A, a synchronic. You're concerned with e- events existing in a limited time and you're ignoring historical historical antecedents. OK, so let me go back to the to the description here. All right. So they use a synchronic approach instead of. Right. So they're going to contrast the synchronic with a diachronic. Diachronic means concerned with the way in which something, especially language, has developed and evolved through time. So they're going to use a synchronic versus a diachronic approach. And synchronic seems to be focused on, well, exactly how were this words used, I guess, at a specific time. That's, that's the best I can come up with, all right? So the literary postmodern approach, interpreters use a synchronic approach instead of a diachronic approach, more common in traditional criticism. And they are attuned to literary questions of style, character, and narrative, as well as to hermeneutical issues raised by post-structuralism, post-colonialism, and reader response theories. There you, there you go. Yeah, the average layperson is going to figure all of that. And that's the summarizing it. So let's go through that again. The literary postmodern view. You're going to take a synchronic approach instead of a diachronic approach. And you're going to be be attuned to literary questions of style, character, and narrative, as well as to hermeneutical issues raised by the following things. Post-structuralism, post-colonialism, and reader response theories. Now, I, as I read that, I was just like, what, what is that? And so I, I looked at the chapter in the book and I just kept looking and I, and I go like, how would, what, what, it's so, it's so theoretical. It's so vague. Now I know people who hold to this view are going to get really mad that I, but I'm just saying the average unlearned person would not even know where to begin with not only that paragraph, they wouldn't even know where to begin with all of those concepts. They would have to be looking up all of those concepts, right? They would have to be looking up a synchronic. They'd have to be looking up, uh, they'd have to look up the phrase uh, diachronic. They would have to look up the concept of post-structuralism, post-colonialism, and reader response theories. And then they would have to figure out exactly how all of that applies to interpreting the Bible and what that would look like. And I guarantee you, by the time they were done, they would probably be more perplexed and more confused. But hey, the Bible, it's the final authority. Anybody should just be able to pick it up and read it. But, but within Christianity, do you, I want you to just understand this. The difference between the historical, grammatical, and literary and postmodern the difference between the two is like standing on, you know, the North Pole and the other one is on the South Pole. It's polar opposites. Is that, is that a good way of putting it? I mean, it's the other side of the world. It, it, it's just, 
Look, those two, like if, if two individuals are arguing doctrine, theology, there's no point in arguing. You're coming at it from such, you're not even speaking the same language. Which one's right? Hey, don't look to the church. Church doesn't have the authority. Now you do. But, but according to the way it's typically taught in the Protestant world, you don't need all of these, this, you don't need this hermeneutical stuff. You don't need it. You should just be able to pick it up and read it. Really? Well, if that's the case, after 2,000 years of picking it up and reading it, why can't you get Christians to agree? Just, just hop on social media and start talking about anything related to Christianity or the Bible. Immediate disagreement, 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 disagreement. You're not saved. They're not saved. He's not saved. They're not saved. They shouldn't be preaching. You shouldn't be preaching. They shouldn't be teaching. That's a bad church. Don't go here. Don't read that. Don't listen to this. Burn that. And you're like, okay, well, that's thank you for another wonderful day on Christian social media. Here's the third one. Philosophical, theological method. So we got the historical grammatical, sometimes known as historical critical grammatical. We've got the literary postmodern, which I don't even know what to tell you. Put it this way. It's more of a literary approach, I I guess is the only way to to even explain that one. Philosophical, theological. This is obviously going to be much more philosophical. First, this approach is not just about interpreting the Bible. It's not restricted to interpreting text. It is not a method or strategy for interpreting. <laughs> now, just wrap your mind around that. This is a hermeneutical method that acknowledges it's not a method or strategy for interpreting. <laughs> what? <laughs> that's that's mind-blowing right there. Okay, my they, they go in, they quote someone here. My real concern was and is philosophical or philosophic. Not what we do or what we ought to do, but what happens to us over and above our wanting and doing. In other words, the question is, what is going on often behind our backs when we interpret texts and other phenomena? I, that, that's, the, <laughs> that's the summary for the philosophical method. I don't even know what that means. Now, I know what you're going to say. Well, that's just ridiculous. That's just stupid. Who would use the philosophical method? Who would use the literary postmodern method? That's just stupid. Okay, well, who gives you the authority to say which method is right? Oh, you do. And, and, and <laughs> Okay. All right. Oh, here's the next one. The redemptive historical. Now, they describe this one as proponents of a redemptive historical view uh, following the theological interpretation of the reformers argue that the role of Christ in his redemptive work is central to interpreting the whole of Scripture, whether the Old or New Testament. So it's almost like, instead of worrying about more of the historical, grammatical, what's actually going on literal, it's almost the approach is much more like, well, where do I see Christ and his redemption in it? Like, I don't have to figure out the historical, okay, this is Israel, this was what was going on, here's the grammatical words, here's, no, so then something about Israel may actually just be a picture of Christ and his redemption and redeeming those in the church, so then Israel isn't Israel, land isn't land, and, and well, that's how you end up with all millennialism, all right, in a roundabout way. Now, some who hold to a historical grammatical will still borrow from certain aspects of the redemptive historical, but they're different. They're differing views. 
And then lastly, the canonical view. The canonical view argues for the necessity of reading the entire canon in relationship to each part of the canon. Thus, the Old Testament should be read in light of the New Testament and the New Testament in light of the Old Testament. More than this, however, even the parts of the canon should be read in light of each other, such as the placement of Acts with various canonical groupings and how this determines interpretation of the Gospels, the Pauline epistles, or the other, what they refer to as Catholic epistles or the church epistles. That's that. So, the canonical view. I, I could probably try to work on that one, but the point is, those are the five views. We should hear them again. The historical grammatical, the literary postmodern, the philosophical theological, the redemptive historical, and the canonical. Now, obviously, the two major ones that you're going to find in most of the evangelical world are going to be the historical grammatical and the redemptive historical. But even those, there's differences. There's massively different approaches which lead to completely different interpretations and completely different conclusions, meaning there's no point in arguing our, 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 our conclusions until we go back and see if we can come to an agreement on our, historic, on our uh, hermeneutical approaches which just leads to never-ending frustration and just like there's no point in arguing because we can't even agree on the hermeneutical system. So I've been thinking about this all day. I I keep, I keep, you keep hearing me on my chair. I keep just kind of hopping out of my chair because I just, I really want to just stand up right now and just start walking around the room and start, I don't know, talking out loud to myself. Here's what I was thinking. And you can tell me what you think. I believe if we take a non-Catholic approach, meaning that we reject the concept of a magisterial authority, we reject it. We don't believe the church has the authority to offer the authoritative interpretation. It can offer an interpretation of Scripture, but we have the right to question and judge that interpretation with our own study of the Bible. If we hold to that concept in any way, shape, or form, because our only option is either go back to Rome and submit to a magisterial authority, and if we're not going to do that, then I think we are left with some, I think we're, we're left with only a few options here. So, so let's just start with this. We're going to reject, just for argument's sake, and obviously in practice, because I, I, I'm obviously not a Catholic. So we're going to reject the magisterial authority approach that the church has the authority, the church is the one who offers the interpretation, and that the, the, the lay person, the church member, is to follow what the church says. All right? They still may read and study the Bible, but they, they don't, they're, they're to read and study, but they look to the church for the interpretation. All right, we reject that concept. So if you reject that, you're left with a, you're left with very few options because the minute you reject that, you have to believe then that the Bible is the final and sole authority and it's for every individual. It's not just for the church, church leader. It's just not for the seminary professor. It's just not for the hermeneutics professor. It's for every individual. And so you have to agree or you would have to think that whatever system of interpretation is the right one, it would have to be one that would be the most basic, simple, and straightforward 
Because the more you make it complicated, the more complex it becomes, the more you supposedly require all of this special training and years of reading hermeneutic books and sitting in a hermeneutics class, the the, the more you now place the interpretation of the Bible into the hands of the selected authority. In other words, you just replaced the Catholic Church as the authority. Now you place it in, I don't know, whoever the, your, your, your chosen experts, your chosen magisterium. It's, it's whoever, you know, it's Grudem, it's, it's, it's MacArthur, whomever, you know, Alistair Beck, whoever you want to put up there. You know, just, I'm just throwing out random names, whoever it wants to be. In other words, the more complex and convoluted the system of hermeneutics is that you believe is the correct one, you may then find yourself just basically submitting your understanding to a different magisterial authority. You just replace the Pope with a different Pope. Well, that can't be right. So in other words, we would have to conclude that if the Bible is for the average person and that it's going to thoroughly equip you, it's going to make you perfect. It's going to give you doctor. It's going to give you that, it, that, the, that the average person can pick up the Bible using ordinary means and come to a somewhat of a correct understanding. If it's just, if it, all it requires is ordinary means, then the hermeneutical system that goes with that would have to be the one that is the most straightforward and would be the most like ordinary means and in interpreting anything else. And so my argument would be the only one that would make the most sense would be the historical grammatical. I mean, it's, these are books written to people. So we would, I think the average person with doing basic reading comprehension would be like, well, who is this written to? Like, right? When you, when you open up Roman, when you, op- uh, when you open up uh, the book of Romans, right? Um, and you read uh, verse 7, Romans 1, 7, to all that be in Rome, all right, you know that Paul, who's the author, is identified in, uh, in Romans 1, verse 1, and he specifically re- says to all that be in Rome. So we know Paul, who identifies himself, is writing to a specific people. Now, yes, I do agree. We would have to then go outside of the page of the Bible to figure out when was it written, right? We'd have to get that. So, and then we can do a little bit of a historical background check but the average person can do all of this. That would just be basic ordinary means. Who wrote it? Who did they write it to? When did they write it? What was going on at the time of the writing? And why, what was the purpose in there in writing it? All right. Now, what is the language that's used? And we would always interpret the language in the most straightforward way possible, right? I mean, in other words, we would interpret it in a literal sense, unless the literal sense makes no sense, right? Now, that's the only way to approach it. Now, I'm not saying that we wouldn't consider the literary styles. I'm not saying we wouldn't consider the literary styles. I'm just saying that whatever method you come up with, it would have to be the most simple and straightforward or because the more complicated it becomes, the more convoluted it becomes, the more theoretical it becomes, the more it becomes something that you've got to read this book and this book and this book and this book. It no longer is even attainable to the average person sitting in the pew. I think that our view that the church has lost its authority or never had it or abused it and corrupted and lost it, what, however you want to view church history, the average person, the average, if, 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 as the London Baptist Confession of Faith says, that, you know, just use the average unlearned person using ordinary means, 
should be able to pick it up and read it and at least gain an understanding to anything that would pertain to what is required for salvation, including obedience, like the, the basic parts of what you need to know to be a Christian. Now, sadly, 2,000 years, that, that clearly hasn't worked because people continue to disagree. But then you say, well, maybe they continue to disagree because we've developed these convoluted hermeneutical systems that actually have done more harm than good. They, within the Protestant world, they are never, ever, ever going to say the pastor has the right to give the authoritative interpretation. You, they, they can... They can play, they can pay lip service and say, well, if my pastor says something, I'm really, I'm going to consider him. You'll consider him to the point, to the minute you disagree. And the minute you disagree, you don't care how many schools he went to. You don't care how many degrees he has because you think you have the same right, the same power and the same ability to interpret the Bible as that pastor. And not only that, you believe you have the right to interpret it and judge his interpretation. And if you deem his interpretation wrong, you feel you have justifiable grounds not only to leave the church, but to go start another one. I think we're left with very few options. Either you create your own magisterial authority, which is, which is wrong. Because, I mean, we left one magisterial authority. We don't replace it with a different magisterial authority. But I think, I, I, so therefore, whatever method of interpret, interpretation is correct, it's got to be the one that's most simple, most straightforward that the average person can pick up and gain and understand it. But I think we would have to acknowledge that, that no matter what we want to say here, I think we would have to acknowledge that there's some level that the average person has to learn some basic rules of hermeneutics and of Bible study methods. I, they would have to. I, I, I see. I know that goes against the kind of the Protestant mindset, but 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 put it this way: they have to know ordinary means. So they, they got to know the basic rules of reading. They got to know the basic rules of grammar, basic rules of reading. They have to know that. And again, I know some are going to say, no, 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 you, the Holy Spirit's the one that leads you on the truth. He, he opens your eyes. 2,000 years of church history, for crying out loud, if the Holy Spirit's leading us into truth, the church would be unified after 2,000 years. That's not the way it works, okay? All right? And then all the people who claim that God's telling, I mean, because you know what, you know the danger of that. If you come to, if you believe that God's the one giving you the interpretation, well, the minute you come to an interpretation, well, nobody can ever convince you you're wrong because you believe your interpretation came directly from God. So clearly everyone else is wrong and you've been given divine revelation. So, I mean, that just, that just leads to, so that leads to utter complete spiritual chaos. Now, he's giving us his revelation in written form, and we have to use the ordinary means to interpret a written form. And that has to be some, obviously, a system of hermeneutics. I just think that the system of hermeneutics, if it's, if it's, if the concept is that the average person can pick it up and read it, it's got to be a system that can be manageable by the average person. If you keep hearing sounds, that's, I got pencils all over the place. I keep picking them up because when I start thinking, 
I'm going to stop there because I just realized we're in one hour and three minutes. So. I don't know what else to say. I, um, I would challenge, this is what I would challenge you to do. Don't, don't worry about buying that book. I mean, personally, I mean, no, no. I mean, if you've got 20, you can get a copy of the book for free. If you can get a copy of the book for free uh, that I recommended here, let me open my Kindle. Um, let me close this. The, uh, the five views of biblical hermeneutics. If you can find a copy of it for free, by all means, read it. But I would just tell you when you read it, skip the chapter one, the historical, critical, grammatical, go right to the literary postmodern view and just start reading it and just tell me if you can figure it out, if you know exactly what they're talking about. Like, like if you, if you were, and, uh, and, and you can see right here, they, they mentioned the word diachronic right there. there. There's the word diachronic right here in this discussion. Uh, synchronic is probably in here somewhere. Uh, but I mean, you start reading through this and I'm telling you, you'll be like, what am I supposed to do with this? And then they, after they go through all of their different supposed elements for the, this literary concept, liter, uh, what's it called? The literary, um, the literary postmodern view. Once they go through it, then they show you basically how this view is used to apply these principles to uh, Matthew chapter two, verses seven through 15. By all means, look at it. But when you're done, just ask yourself, okay, well, first of all, after you read it, could you take that and even come close to interpreting the Bible? Number two, could the average layperson? And if the average layperson could not even comprehend, in other words, they would first have to learn this method and after learning it, would they even be able to come close to interpreting the Bible? Well, then at that point, if they couldn't, then that means it would require a special group of people who could, which then you create a magisterial authority. All right, I'll stop right there. I'm going to check something because a lot of times uh, the chat on the app stops working. It's been doing that lately. So let me open up my iPad here. Let me open this up really quick. All right. Good. All right. Nobody uh, had anything else to say because nobody else probably knows what else to say. I'm going to end this with taking a drink of water. There you go. All right. Yeah, I know that you don't care, but... Uh, yeah. Uh, my frustration is just as... Uh, ir- I'm just as frustrated as when I started because it just bothers me. It just, It's just so... Uh, uh, I, it's just so irritating because, you know, you listen to a discussion about eschatology and you're like, God, give me a break. You know, they're just, they're, they're just completely night and day systems, right? And then you just realize it, it, who cares about the, the eschatology? It's the hermeneutics. You're using, say, a redemptive historical approach. Someone else is using a, a, grammat- a historical grammatical approach. Well, okay, well, if we can't agree on the the system, then how do we agree on, on like, that's just maddening. It's just utterly, and that's why there's just so much chaos within the church. So I think whatever you want to do with it, if you're going to reject the magisterial authority, I'll just end with this. You have to agree that whatever method of interpretation is right, it's got to be one that the, just the average person can pick up and use. 
and a pretty regular and a pretty easy, consistent basis. Or we're just fooling ourselves. We threw out the authority of the church to replace it with the individual, and the individual would have to be able to have the ability to interpret. And if, the, and if we create systems of hermeneutics that the average individual can't even use, well, then the average individual can't do so, and the only one who can interpret it are the ones who know the systems of hermeneutics. So it's got to be something basic and simple and straightforward. All right. Now, please note, this was just me sharing frustration. This is just me speaking about this for an hour. I'm not being dogmatic on any conclusion. Obviously, I hold to the historical grammatical, obviously. Um, and I, I'm, you know, I'm willing to change my view. But when I read about these other systems and I'm like, after reading it for an hour, I'm like, I, I don't even know what, I don't even know what to do with that. I don't even understand it. I don't know. I, I, how would I, how would I, and I, and I start thinking, how would I teach people how to use this system? And they, I wouldn't even know how to teach them the system. Like if you're going to teach people a system of hermeneutics, it's got to be very basic, simple rules, right? So, all right, I'll stop. I could go for another hour, but I'll, I won't, I won't do that. So we'll, we'll see what, we'll see if this, this, I think this is going to be one of those episodes that won't spark much of a conversation. It won't spark much of a disagree, uh, much, much of a discussion. And if someone disagrees, it's just not going to add any, any I doubt it's going to be very beneficial. So we may not talk about it anytime soon, but I wanted to at least throw this out there and uh, we'll talk about, uh, we'll talk about some of these methods at uh, probably at some point in time, but maybe at some point in time, we'll see if we can work through some of these. All right, I'll stop right there. Everyone have a great day. You can email me newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. God bless.